0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host today, Steven Siegel, and it's my great pleasure to speak with two eminent historians, Professor Valerie Kievelson and Professor Christine Vorovetz, who are the authors of a new book called Witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine. 1000 to 1900, a source book. They are the editors of this book, published by Cornell University Press 2020. So thank you, Val, and thank you, Christine, for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you, Stephen.
0: So at this difficult and and dark time, I want to say a few words uh, about um, their biographies, Valerie Kibelson teaches at the University of Michigan, where she is the Thomas N. Tentler Collegiate Professor and Arthur F. Turnow Professor of History. She is a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. Her publications include Russia's Empires 2016, co-authored with Ron Suni. Cartographies of Tsardom, The Land and Its Meanings in 17th Century Russia, 2006, a book which really inspired me. And of course, the one we'll be talking about today on witchcraft. Her current projects include a monograph on icons of empire, imagery, and imperial expansion in early modern Russia. Christine uh, Warbetz, her biography, with the generous support of NEH, Institute of Advanced Studies in Paris, Alexandria Institute at the University of Helsinki, and Open Society Institute. Professor Vorobetz is the Distinguished Research Professor Emerita at Northern Illinois University. She has published widely on 19th century Russian and Ukrainian peasants, women and gender issues, and religious history. Her monographs, Peasant Russia Family and Community in Post-Emancipation Russia, 1991, and Possessed Women, Witches, and Demons, 2001, have both won the HELT Prize of the, American, the uh, AWSS. She has received the 2008 Association for Slavic Women's Studies Outstanding Achievement Award and the 2017 Association for Slavic East European and Eurasian Studies Distinguished Contribution Award. So I really want to get right to the content of this book. And for both of you, if I may, I'll start with a general question about your motivation, what drew you to this topic, and how you got started.
1: Uh, well, Christine and I both have been working on witchcraft in this part of the world for Several decades, number of decades. Um, for me personally, I, I kind of fell into the topic by a, an unexpected archival finding when I was working on an altogether unrelated topic. I was working on provincial politics and found records of a, a large witchcraft case, which just immediately drew my, my interest. And the, the topic, as we've both discovered, is, is a fabulously productive one for historians because it gets us into recesses of people's lives that are usually inaccessible. The the innermost recesses of peasants and women and illiterate people and into their emotional lives. And it also opens up um, really productive avenues for comparative history. So all of those, I think, were part of the attraction. Christine?
2: Um, I came to the subject matter uh, as a comparative historian. After working on a book on Russian peasants, I uh, wanted to explore the, uh, the general topic uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century for Ukrainian peasants uh, living in the Russian Empire. And in doing so, I was also attracted by topics concerning religion. And the ethnographic material that had been um, written about um, in the 19th century, really concentrated on demonology. And I thought, oh, this was a great topic. But as I got into the literature, I realized that it was skewed, that um, we would just be repeating Uh, all sorts of names of demons and and how they were so colorful and so on. But I wanted to know what was happening on the ground. And I began then to look for instances of witchcraft in both the Russian and Ukrainian villages. Uh, And this means very disparate. Uh, villages throughout both, uh, the Russian speaking areas and Ukrainian speaking areas, as well as mixed villages and so on. And I came across references to Klikushestva, demon possession in Russian areas and not in Ukrainian areas. And that really intrigued me. And that began then a study of witchcraft. Uh, this goes back to, oh, about, uh, 1999, and uh, have been working on it ever since. And as a comparative scholar, I am very much convinced that by comparing uh, historical experiences uh, in uh, Russian areas and Ukrainian areas uh, provides just a wonderful window onto the similarities as well as the major differences. Uh, amongst these areas. And it's not for nationalistic reasons or for some kind of inherent brotherhood existing between these two nations. It's trying to figure out, in essence, what is happening on the ground. And it also explores where there are silences. So the absence of Klikusha in Ukrainian areas uh, suggests uh, now that uh, uh, that um, may have been uh, something that was deliberate. I'm now finding some cases where monasteries uh, in uh, Ukraine sent Klukushi away, for example, from the Pcherska Lavra to other monasteries in Ukraine. And so um, we're, I'm interested in how religion was practiced by worshipers at all levels of society.
0: Well, thank you. I think that's a really good jumping off point for many of the questions that I've noted in reading through this as a source book. So my first big question for Val is really given your work on centers and peripheries on cartography and visual evidence and sources, I wonder if you could explain to our listenership your procedures in collecting some of this evidence, if you had in mind a certain geography, or if you had in mind a way of conceptualizing this early modern relationship between the centers and the peripheries in your study of witchcraft?
1: Interesting. Uh, So I think, to be honest, when I started which Uh, Christine, you surprised me with 1999. I guess I started over a decade earlier um, in the 80s working on this material. And um, quite honestly, I was less aware of peripheries at that time. I think scholarship was so Russian-centric at that time. But as I continued, so so what I did was I poured through all of the documents of the central Muscovite judicial chancelleries and found any trace of witchcraft that I could find. Um, and uh, similarly with the 18th century material, which our colleagues had worked on, really using those central Muscovite and and. Uh, and Petrine Petersburg archives, but as time went on, uh, my thinking, along with the field, really changed, really opened up, and I, as I got interested in Siberia, especially, I turned to look for witchcraft trials in other parts of the country of the of the empire. Siberia as a periphery turns out to be very interesting because it has its own occult traditions, uh, or, or religious traditions in shamanism and other, other, um, modes of, of practice. And the trials pretty carefully differentiate witchcraft from shamanism for Ukraine. Uh, the cases were hard for me to access because of language, uh, and our colleagues have really, well, Christine and our other colleagues have really made that piece accessible, which has been a huge boon. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I see because I'm always attentive to maps that that there is a a map both which I would you know I would describe in the Russian case or maybe in in the Petrine case from Muscovy. And then there's an early modern map of Ukrainian lands, which I I think does really well in, in stretching the book both geographically and, and and time-wise through right bank Ukraine and left bank Ukraine. So um, I think that that is one of my um, my compliments to you in Really, I think devising this as a, a history covering 900 years of both Russia and, and Ukraine. Um, Stephen,
1: could could I jump in on the map? Please, Sorry to please. cut you off, but um, I, I agree. I, I think we we agree. Those maps are so helpful in reminding us of the complicated multicultural histories and entanglements. Uh, especially of of the Ukrainian lands, and and do a lot of visual work, and we want to thank Carl Longstreth, who made those maps for us uh, here at the University of Michigan.
0: Yeah, um, thank you. And, and for Christine, I have a have a slightly different question for you, and, and we'll begin to kind of combine this in the layout layout of the book uh, as my follow up. But I, I'm very interested in how you um, brought together not just the history of Ukraine, but also the history of of magic and ritual from Poland, Lithuania, from within these multicultural, multi-ethnic spaces. And, And I guess if you could respond to that, my question for you would be how you found points of intersection between legal and religious history. I think there are a lot of Really big surprises that that we might be able to talk about gender wise in in the book in terms of how witchcraft is treated. But I am really fascinated in how you read the the many, many volumes of of legal history into the the individual cases of of witchcraft across this multicultural, multi ethnic space. Well,
2: some of this was um, pioneering work in that having uh, worked. In legal documents uh, having to do with Russian peasant villages in the post emancipation period, I uh, did not come across uh, cases of witchcraft, but I was really interested in uh, local court systems, what happened in the Volus court, for example. And there were uh, Volus courts in areas of Ukraine and the Russian Empire as well. But as we uh, broached this comparative perspective of Ukrainian and Russian witchcraft, uh, I certainly had been dependent initially on ethnographic reports, which are very different than legal documents and understanding legal structures. And so in putting together this source book, We had to do quite a bit of original research in uh, trying to uncover, in essence, what uh, Saxon law was like, because Saxon law and various other Germanic laws were really part of the Ukrainian experience. And that is very different. Magdeburg law really investigating it, to see, reading the law codes uh, that were peculiar, uh, and I use that word in in a positive way, that were unique to the Ukrainian case, that were absent in the Russian case, where Roman law, Germanic law does not prevail. And then we had the other major problem. I have been studying for the last uh, 20 years, uh, a new courts uh, that was set up by Catherine the Great, uh, these conscience courts or um, uh, that um, allowed witchcraft to be adjudicated in a space where actual written law could be amended and mitigated and become more humane and not prosecute witchcraft so uh, dramatically. And that took quite a bit of work beyond, yeah, Val and I, we rewrote those sections repeatedly uh, and just figuring out how the system worked. Um, was extremely uh, complicated, and for those of uh, our scholars who work on Petrine Russia, uh, that was an opaque area as well. And so we had to do a lot of original research. And uh, I think I think we've made a good step forward. Uh, we have a lot of material on how the legal processes work, and and the two. Societies are extremely different uh, in the Ukrainian case. Even when uh, Ukrainian lands became a part of the Russian empire, Ukrainian law, uh, based on Magdeburg uh, Saxon law, uh, continued to um, be um, allowed uh, and is not really subjugated until uh, near the end of the era. Uh, 18th century, but uh, obviously still um, had resonance within these societies.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to re- return to some of the points that both of you just made, um, but if I may, as a kind of intermezzo for our listeners, I will say that the book um, is is so extensive; it's divided not only into chapters, but it also covers parts. So, part one is called Historical Evolution, Law and Prosecution, with four chapters. Part two is Magical Practices, Everyday Matters and the Power of Words, trial excerpts, um, also covering uh, several chapters. Um, And and I think if I may ask both of you, I would really like to turn to the um, history of gender within this book and, and to how the charges, or at least maybe even the imagination of, of witches, um, how they are accused legally and extra legally, how, how loyalty oaths are, um, intended. Right. And, and, you know, sort of like how you're looking back to some of the classic documents of Russian history, like the, the Kerbsky, um, correspondence. My, my question really for you would be, um, for our listenership, if you could tell us maybe what some of the, the surprises have been about your findings as you've poured through these records, who wants to take that?
1: Christine wants to take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank there you are now. surprises. Go. go. There, Deference is key.
2: <laughs> there were a lot of surprises, and um, and so what I have to say from the outset is that Val and I felt as if we were starting from scratch again, that yes, we knew a lot, but boy, did we not know a lot. (laughs) And as we were um, looking at not only um, documents that we have read previously any number of times and, and the Kerbsky, for example, Grosny correspondence uh, rereading it, with uh, a mindset of what witchcraft is all about, we were really struck by the way in which all ranks uh, or um, groups within uh, early modern uh, Russian society were um, captivated by magic. And when, you know, we used to talk about political witchcraft as something that was specific to, uh, the upper classes, uh, or, uh, were specific to, uh, any individual who may have made an aspersion against, uh, uh, the crown that, that, is a very old fashioned way of thinking the political was everywhere as people are trying to understand uh, their relationship to authority and people are protesting serfdom. They're, they're reacting to, uh, and, and serfdom comes uh, gradually in the Musquehite lands um, uh, starting in the late uh 16th century and moving into uh obviously the 17th century and so on but political relationships are through you know are are prevailed through all aspects of society but i was totally astonished in translating and coming across the oil uh, loyalty oaths to the tsar and we uh begin with um Uh, the uh, oath uh, that was given to uh, uh, Boris uh, Godunov, uh, and uh, the language is full of magic and evil that can be uh, thrust upon not only the Tsar, but his family and any progeny. And it continues in loyalty oaths uh, through the 17th century in slightly different formats. The actual oaths to uh, Godunov and Shusky uh, have magic uh, in the actual oath, whereas under um, uh, the first two uh, Romanovs, we have uh, a more... Uh, standardized, I suppose, oath, but there are oaths given by anyone in the Tsar's household or the Tsarina's household that are full of references to magic. And these are, um, you know, uh, servitors have to and had to uh, provide oaths that said that they would protect uh, the Tsar and uh, his family from any kind of evil, herbs, curses. Uh, it's full of very um, detailed language about witchcraft practices that we see on the ground in villages. So the widespread um, aspect of this witchcraft is really quite astounding, and it lingers into the 18th century. Uh And so that, that, that one finding was so exciting. But when it comes to something like religion, uh, we have a Polish case or excuse me, a Ukrainian case set in, uh, a Polish in, uh, uh, area of Ukraine in which we have a man who is turned to by a cleric's wife, uh, for exorcism and, Uh, the house. There's description of the house and and how this exorcist goes about protecting the house against demons and and the devil's work. And I read that I don't know how many times until I had to write up uh, the introduction to that particular example. And I realized quite suddenly that There were lots of borrowings from church services, the use of a sensor, for example, but also the baptismal um, rite. And it it dawned on me all of a sudden. It was like the light bulb went on. And um, we had lots of light bulbs like that. Yeah, where all of a sudden I, we realize something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, there are so many rich stories that you have uh, out of the the demonological literature. You know, to, to really diverge from the the stereotypes that um, Western scholars or scholars in Western Europe might have about men and women and and, and witchcraft, um, and and that was striking to me just reading um, through all of the the meticulous evidence that that you've. Um, collected, and, and as you say, about the efficacy of magic through the late 18th century. Val, I want to give you a chance to, to answer this in, in your own voice. So in, in all the records that you, you searched through, maybe you know involving 900 people or 500 trials, what, what were the big surprises that, that you drew out of the early modern period?
1: Yeah, I think the way that magic so profoundly structured politics. Um was was surprising that it wasn't peripheral. We were talking about peripheries earlier. It wasn't an add-on, but it reflected really the fundamental structuring of of society. Um, there's a historian, well, a scholar who works on uh, witchcraft in South Africa today. Uh, named Adam Ashforth, and he describes a state of spiritual insecurity that causes people to look for magical explanations of daily life, of politics, of the world around them. And I think that that really emerged powerfully for me, looking at the sum total of these cases. And even when we don't expect magical thinking anymore in the High Enlightenment, for instance, or in the, in the 19th century. There's a way in which that mode of thinking and explanation comes through across the board. So I think that was one of the big surprises. Uh, another more um, kind of uh, intellectually particular uh, matter for me, was the materiality of magic that came through. So Christine was talking about the loyalty oaths. In those oaths, they're, they're detailed descriptions of the things one shouldn't put in particular places. So one shouldn't uh, tie amulets to the manes of horses, and one shouldn't put grasses in the bedding. So the the, the way in which the spiritual... Insecurity takes material form. I found really fascinating, and we keep finding more and more little tidbits that we wish we could put put back into the book about the meanings of. Uh, we were just talking about milk and honey, which are standard parts of love love charms and are prohibited in penitentials. So the way that perfectly ordinary everyday stuff of life objects can be imbued with magical power and magical danger uh, was really striking to me.
0: Yeah. And there's so much work, you know, I think that that is being done really interesting ways on materiality and material culture. Um, And I think, you know, I hope in many ways that work on the late Soviet period can be informed by this because I, I see Actually, so many parallels across time and space. Um, I, I did want to ask a question about um, church codes and and written law. So I think sometimes when I'm teaching my my pre-modern course, for lack of a better word, or or, or East Slavic world course um, about this the sudiebniks and what what is actually you know in the content of um, not just the Sudyednik, but also the, the conciliar law code and, and church codes. Could you maybe, for our, our audience of, of general listeners here on New Books Network, talk a little bit about the transformation in the 17th century or from, let's say, the 16th, 17th century to 18th century under Peter the Great, what, what happens to this law code? I mean, what actually happens to the sudievnik the Ulojenia in terms of witchcraft? Because I, I see this as a really important dividing line one way or another for the way scholars treat the question of secularization and Westernization, or, or maybe um, don't get the full picture of that, if that's a fair question. So to either of you, please.
1: Um, yeah, so I, I'm not exactly sure where the question was leading in terms of secularization, but let me, let me talk a little bit and then tell me if I've addressed your question. Um, so again, one of the the discoveries that we made when we, when we looked at all of the laws together, uh. You know, we both knew these laws, but but there's something in the pro- process of examining them the way one does for a collection like this that that casts them in a new light. It became clear to us that witchcraft legislation was spotty, erratic, inconsistent. Um, it's not reflected at all in the two Sudyavniki, Um the um, Ivan the Third. Sudiebnik or uh, um, Ivan the Fourth IV, Sudiebnik, it doesn't show up really in the um, in the sixteen forty nine Ulozhenia. Uh, it's sort of in, indirectly imputed, but there are a welter of laws and decrees and and um, quotations from Byzantine law that show up on the side. They characterize witchcraft in different ways Um, and of course Magdeburg law and the Lithuanian statute uh, also have their own conceptions in the Ukrainian lands
2: but very brief Uh, they're incredibly brief and um, one of the things you have to realize is witchcraft was perceived to be so dangerous they had to burn um, the spells and so on they didn't keep because they were perceived to be um extremely dangerous so sometimes you have references to witchcraft without using the word it was perceived in and of itself to be dangerous and i think this is something that really has to be emphasized Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that answers my question really well because i am thinking about um You know, sometimes the the typical way of of teach of teaching about sorcery or the the causes of evil. um, I I actually wondered if you could shift a little bit away from law and and religion um, to the ethnographic parts of this book as you collected sources. So, could could you tell us um, or tell me about? Which sources you you see as somehow central, if that makes any sense, for um, getting at this issue of, of bewitchment. And by that, I simply mean um, the accusations and, and punishment, because it, it seems to change a lot under Catherine the Great with a rationalist understanding of the world, but Maybe give us an idea of the sources that that you see for for magic and bewitchment and, and punishment that that you would find useful for our our students.
1: Well, uh, I think I think if this re- retains a focus on law, but if we look. At the shift from the late 17th century to Peter the Great and then to Catherine, we see real changes in the conceptualization of, of witchcraft and magic and possession in particular. And that, of course, is Christine's bailiwick. But Peter Peter uh, is is known for switching, completely switching the the... Ethical the, po- the positive-negative valence of, of possession and coding shriekers, kikushy, as fakers, le- leveling false accusations. And he's very harsh on them. But it's not that he stops believing in witchcraft. So in, in his military articles, he introduces for the first time in Russian law a sense that, magic might be derived from a pact with the devil. There were cases involving, a few cases involving pacts with the devil earlier, but it wasn't in, entrenched in the law. And he's the one who does that. So it's a it's a really surprising mix there. Uh, it's only with Catherine that the whole shebang gets coded as fakery. And so practicing witchcraft can still bring punishment, but only if someone is accused of of swindling uh, credulous uh, customers by pretending to have magical powers. So that's a a really interesting and very gradual shift. I, I taught this book in a seminar last year, and and the students were utterly fascinated by these these structural. Contradictions that that remain in place throughout the 18th century.
2: And if I could step in for a second, the ethnographic materials are in the trial records themselves, and so we have um, a, a contrast in the Ukrainian cases where most people accused of witchcraft are women. The majority are women, and that. Uh, certainly uh, is in concert with what was happening in much of Western Europe, although not all. The male witches uh, that dominated in the Muscovite case uh, and we have feminization gradually occurring in uh, the 18th and 19th centuries in Russia. Uh, We have examples of masculine uh, or male witches in uh, northern areas, some areas of France. So it's not peculiar To uh, the Russian case, but that comes out very strongly. But the practices themselves, uh, one scholar who I think reviewed Val's book on uh, witchcraft in Muscovy, made a comment that I thought was really interesting and speaks to the fact Uh, And the comment was, um, this is the first time I've read in a a book about witchcraft that the people who um, experienced it really believed in it. And no one would say that in the the European case. And um, I was struck by that because what we are dealing with is not a top-down witchcraft hunt. One had to, whether one was living in Ukrainian lands with different laws or in the Russian case with different laws, the um, petitions came from below. So people had to accuse others of witchcraft, and in their petitions and their accusations, you get details, ethnographic details. Uh, The ethnographic details come out in uh, the actual trials, the incantations, uh, but also descriptions of practices. And uh, what is absent in the ethnographic material, and this is critical, that in both the Ukrainian and Russian cases, there are no witches' covens, there are no witches' Sabbaths, no orgies with the devil, no devil's marks uh, of unnatural teats, uh, which pervade the European Uh, witchcraft, uh, ethnographic materials. And um, there are certainly evidence of those beliefs in Polish writings of the time. So, uh, so those are absent. And instead, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, incantations over hair, over bread that are, that is uh, then perceived to be dice. Um, We're dealing with, incantations that refer to the saints, to the Virgin Mary to and the mother of God and to Christ and to the archangel Michael. They're all, they're infused with Christian uh, elements and uh, they're frowned upon by the church because they're not said by clerics. And there's certainly a campaign beginning in the uh, later 17th century and continuing in the 18th century to say, no, you know, uh, non-clerics can't you know, use this kind of language and so on, but, but the incantations also are full of nature, mm-hmm. and, they, mm-hmm. and they are mm-hmm. so descriptive and so poetic. Uh, that uh, it's hard to um, um, sort of provide the uh, beauty of them in many cases, uh, and, and uh, uh, we have to encourage uh, our listeners to uh, uh, read these incantations. and Students love them.
0: <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I've I, I've given these to students, and you know they, they read these vrazhivniy uh, episma, right? Like the, the witchcraft texts, and and they're just um, they're just overwhelmed and I guess, you know, this is a question for both of you. I, I would say looking to future scholarship, I would love it if someone would kind of map out the texts using um, digital sources and, and sort of like locate um, the places where, where the accusations were made or where the trials were made. And, and that, you know, kind of brings me thinking about this as a source book to larger, bigger, history and historiographical questions um, in the field. And, and this is for early modern Ukraine, for Poland, Lithuania, for Muscovy, for Imperial Russia and so forth. I wonder if, if you could say a few words about this tradition of, of literacy and, and orality. And, and here, I guess Drawing from the magical writings, the very fact that they survive, as you point out, is, is quite remarkable, um, given, you know, given the fact without putting words in your mouth that the clergy um, often were the people who were who were collecting them. But I, I wonder if, you know again, like begging and treating your voice here as, as historians, if you could talk about the ramifications for this study of the politics of, of accusation and witchcraft in and beyond the 19th century, because after all you've covered, my goodness, you know, you've covered 900 years who, who in the right mind would do that, but you did it and, and, and you did it like really, really well as a compliment um, so now I, you know I guess I would like to use some of this time to, to ask you um, about larger implications for how we as scholars might, might research um, these politics
2: one of the things that struck me just as uh, you were speaking uh, Stephen is the fact that in the Ukrainian case what unfortunately what we have are uh trial summaries, and they tend to be rather short. It's very rare to get into a much more detailed trial record, as a result of which we don't, uh, uh, we haven't been able to come across uh, actual incantations, so that doesn't mean that they weren't used. So, our historical record and and the fact that uh, in the Russian case we're we're finding things that weren't burned uh, like the incantations themselves then um, this is a you know a major problem for a historian right if you don't have the evidence um, uh, then uh, it creates some problems but we have enough at least that we feel comfortable enough in making generalizations. Um, I think uh, once you get past uh, 1900, we 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 sort of use 1900 as a cutoff, not to suggest that uh, these ideas uh, and practices about witchcraft suddenly died. They certainly didn't. We had uh, materials that we could point to, uh, for uh, for example, uh, newspaper uh, reports in, uh, and there was one in an Odessa court where a Um, a magician was brought in and was whispering in the back of the court incantations to help um, what must have been his client's case. And we thought, (laughs) oh, we'd love to use this. Uh, But (laughs) but we, we started to get into the problem that we were using sources that we had basically not allowed for the rest. Obviously, newspapers are new new media, but we hadn't used ethnographic materials, so we felt uncomfortable doing that. But we do talk about um, extra-legal uh, cases of witchcraft in... Uh, the particularly after eman- uh, emancipation in uh, Imperial Russia, which would uh, include the Ukrainian lands, uh, where you have um, villagers taking into their own hands justice and sometimes um, attacking someone who was perceived to be a witch or sorcerer that was dangerous to the community or a stranger who came into the into their place, similar practices that they imposed on um, or against uh, horse thieves. And that certainly continues into the 20th century. And we have uh, a bit of a, a discussion of that. But uh, um, you know, cursing is very common. In both these cultures, and I think uh, it's something that um, you know is that continues in Western European and other cultural uh, societies after a period of supposed great secularization. So um, we have to understand these things and where they come from and what they mean at and and how their meanings change over time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, I- Val. Yeah, I just add to that. Um, it's it's easy for secular secular secularizing uh, states to put an end to witchcraft trials. They can just not hear them in the courts anymore. They can take take them off the book as a as a um, crime as a criminal offense. Christine has a great. Article actually, and I think we've we incorporated it in the book as well on how in Russia it was actually a gradual decriminalization. But it's that's a pretty easy thing to do. It's much harder, of course, to eradicate witchcraft belief. And uh, I think all of us who've spent time in the area know that it it has been alive and well. Um, and of course, it's alive and well in our society as well, magic is, is, is pretty much impossible to eradicate. But, but I took it your question also sort of led us to the idea of witch hunts in the metaphorical yes. sense,
0: I, I guess, po- po- politics of this, you know, it really is, a, I'm giving you a loaded question, as I'm sure you realize, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a metaphor that has been much in vogue, especially thanks to our former president, who used the term. Um, I don't know it, when I checked last; it was something like two hundred and seventy-eight times. <laughs> uh, it it was it it's a term that has a lot of charge, and today, I think what it implies is unfair baseless victimization that that it's it's a cry of the of the wronged that this is a witch hunt against me um and there's nothing we can do about the way that term circulates in in popular culture but it clearly is a term that can be abused so in in american culture when it's a man at the top of power who claims to be the victim of a witch hunt. You think about Salem <laughs> or you think about the cases that we're looking at. Um, that is not the power dynamic that structures most witch hunts. And and the power dynamic seems to me to be very important. Um, it also we we use the term now because we don't believe witchcraft is we, real so by the by by in its essence it's a phony charge but one of the things christine just pointed out is people in the societies we're looking at believed this was a serious danger that they were terrified of and while we have no sympathy for people who executed their neighbors on on charges of witchcraft. We do take seriously
0: the
2: belief system in which it was embedded.
0: Yeah. I I just, go ahead, please. Oh, I Mm -hmm. wanted
2: to jump in just for a minute, because I think it's really important to stress that in the Russian and Ukrainian cases involving witchcraft in neither neither place witnessed the kinds of out-of-control witch that took place uh, in some areas of Europe. And we speculate in the book, something that's really very important, that their shared orthodoxy, even though we have the Union of Brest uh, in the uh, Polish uh, lands uh, where Ukraine uh, 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 Ukrainians lived, uh, even though that went... Uh, uh, Catholic uh, in terms of um, agreeing to the supremacy of the Pope, but retained Orthodox right, witchcraft persecution was far less extensive and less lethal in comparison to many parts of Catholic and Protestant Europe. We don't have ecclesiastical uh, officials developing the terrifying vision of heretical witches involved in a satanic conspiracy, and they didn't fixate on women's sexuality that fed into the European identification of women as and as witches. And furthermore, uh, we have far le- by saying it's far less lethal. Uh, the fifteen percent of cases. In Muscovy, from 1600 and then uh, early modern Russian to to the mid-1770s, only 15% of cases led to execution. In the Ukrainian areas, a mere 5% led to execution. That is not to say that there wasn't a lot of torture in um, both areas, um, and it's not to say that there wasn't trauma, anxiety, and so on uh, on the ground, but I think um we, we have to, um, uh, and, and one thing, we were hoping to show that we have on the periphery a, a, a less um, uh, dangerous kind of witchcraft, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, wh- one of the things that I would recommend to our, our readers, aside from reading the, all the book and, and all the sources, is to pay very close attention to your focus on anthropology. Uh, This was something that really impressed me in the book, the anthropological perspective on, on witchcraft and sorcery and and possession. Um, And and also I would say the other disciplines where we can then look at witchcraft, perhaps not simply as a pre-modern phenomenon, but maybe even as a postmodern phenomenon in art history and philosophy and literature and performance studies so I, I guess, you know, all the way to the end in your book covering the work of, of, of Katerina Disa that you mentioned a lot in Ukrainian, um, as well as, you know, work on Guatemala and South Africa and Spain and, and other places. I think this is incredibly um, valuable for our readers, especially at this moment of, of war um, in Russia and Ukraine today. So my final question, just as a parting, um, and, and this is my word of gratitude and thank you for your time at this moment. If you would simply say in one minute what you uh, might be interested in now or, or working on now, or if you'd like to suggest other readings for our students,
1: I'm I'm always interested in in witchcraft and magic, and I'm I'm maintaining a. A sideline and working on the spells themselves, which, as Christine said, are just so transcendently beautiful and and terrifying. But my my actual project at the moment is working on questions of sovereignty. Just a paper I'm working on in, in Petrine, Russia, and thinking about sovereignty and the and territorial sovereignty of states and nations has taken on a whole new meaning in today's yes, world. So I'm finding the horror of the moment has has kind of electrified the work we do and made it all the more important uh, important to get get some some enlightenment
0: yeah. on the subject. I wouldn't disagree <laughs> really. Thank thank you. Christine I'm uh,
2: continuing to work on decriminalization as it was understood by Catherine the Great and uh, the ramifications of that, which still allowed witchcraft to be uh, adjudicated and prosecuted in courts uh, until uh, the mid-19th century and its complicated story. But most of my attention has been on um, two projects, one comparing pilgrimages of Russian uh, Orthodox believers, regardless of their ethnicity, uh, to sacred sites, and through the the prism of individual monastic sites that drew pilgrims. And so I've worked extensively, for example, on the Pecherska Lavra, in uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. And I am now in contact with someone who's giving me a lot of information about Pochaev, which is really interesting. And we, uh, I have uh, also interest in Solovki Alam uh, obviously Holy Trinity, uh, St. Sergius Monastery in Moscow, and pilgrimages have had a revival in this uh, pre-war situation. Uh, the fact that uh, Svyatogorsk uh, was bombed the other day um, was horrifying to me, and uh, to see the number of churches that have been bombed uh, in uh, Ukraine and the uh, wholesale dis- destruction uh, is totally hypocritical on the part of Um, the Russian authorities, where they're um, bombing uh, their uh, uh, Orthodox uh, parishes. And it's, uh, of course, uh, very disturbing. But beyond that, looking at, uh, I have been doing a lot of work with the uh, uh, post-revolutionary situation in what became the Soviet Union, and that is how people practiced religion under an atheistic regime, and the resistance to that atheism, and the way it, it is so powerful—it—it—it—it—it's uh, 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 it, it, really uh, just inspiring um, materials that I'm uncovering that people have not written about.
0: Yeah, well, I think we are completely out of time here on the New Books Network, and. I simply want to say thank you again at this really hard um, moment for joining me in a conversation about um, this book, Witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine, uh, 1000 to 1900, a source book. It is edited by Valerie Kibbleson and Christine Borovets, published by Cornell University Press, available uh, 2020. It is also available in paperback. Um, thank you, professors Kibelson uh, and Orabets, really for your time today. I'm I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank Steve. you so much. Yes. Great talking with you. Great talking to you. And, and I'm your host here on New Books Russian and Eurasian Studies, New Books East European Studies, and New Books in Gender and Sexuality podcast channels on the New Books Network. Steven Siegel signing off. Until next time.